All right, well, I wanted to record uh, this equipping hour on the worshiping church um, that was lost. Uh, this is one on spirituality and mysticism that a couple people had asked about, and we didn't have a recording. Um, so I'm recording this one separately, if that's why it sounds a little different. Might be a little bit quicker. Not sure. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, so yeah, this is just a continuing thinking through theology of worship. really wanted to, to look at the contemporary Christian movement is what I had in mind and, and really thinking about this notion of spirituality and kind of the last 80 years or so and how they've affected our theology of worship, spirituality, and revival, which is something I had, had wanted to speak about for a while. Uh, just in, in reference to last week, um, I, I was talking to a few guys after equipping hour. Again, this is several weeks ago now <laughs> that I'm recording this. Um, but just bringing some clarity, thinking about movements such as Bethel, Elevation, and Hillsong. Um, while we might have similar vocabulary, we're, we're speaking about we're speaking out of completely different dictionaries, if we want to put it that way. Uh, it kind of goes back to the old adage I've heard before: even a dead clock is right twice a day. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why these guys get so popular. I mean, it sounds good, right? If if they mention Jesus, what's the big deal? Uh, you know, how, how bad can it really be? Um, and I just wanted to make the point that they have a completely different theology of God and of Scripture. Uh, they would see the Holy Spirit as kind of just this force that needs to lead us off the pages of Scripture. There was an article I gave out that really touched on that. Um, Jen Johnson she is the daughter of the head pastor, Bill Johnson, and she's their senior worship pastor, so do with that what you want. Um, she's on multiple occasions said explicitly that the Holy Spirit, this is just a quote, the Holy Spirit is like the genie from Aladdin. He's funny and he's there, the two he is to me. Um, you can look up more crazy stuff on YouTube. Um, Bill Johnson, the main pastor there, he teaches that the primary reason for God's miracles is so that we um, can pursue the same lifestyle, healings, casting out demons, um, though Jesus does those, so we can see that that's the holistic lifestyle that we should be pursuing. Um, teaches that God doesn't allow or bring disease or sickness. If you say that he does, you're preaching another gospel. That's what he would say. Um, you also have grave sucking. Uh, where they will lay on the top of graves of dead Christians to suck up their, quote, anointing. Back in 2019, there was an incident where um, the church was having these, quote, worship services where they were calling on God to raise from the dead a toddler from their church who had, who had died. Um, I mean, you can find videos online, them dancing around, going crazy, um, saying Olive, that was the name of the girl, saying Olive, wake up, Olive, wake up, and just hours and hours and hours of this uh, just craziness. Um, you, you have, this is a direct quote from Bill Johnson. The reason Jesus raises the dead is because not everyone dies in God's timing. I mean, just outlandish stuff. Um, even a, a secular professor at USC uh, responded by saying that even that statement in particular seemed presumptuous and inconsistent with Pentecostal Christian teaching on the sovereignty of God. Now, the reason I, I, I wanted to bring all this up um, is not to just say, you know, look how bad this is. You know, that's true. It's not good. It's contrary to scripture. Uh, but primarily, I'm trying to warn um, all of us because this is so established in our American Christian culture. Um, I was looking up online, I think it was about the last 10 years uh, or so, the top Christian worship songs uh, in, the, uh, in the U.S. Every time, each year, uh, the top 10, 7, 8, 9, sometimes 10 out of 10. 
They're all either by Bethel, Hillsong, or Elevation. I mean, that's the air that the evangelical church is breathing. It's that, that's, that's all of our, of our music, generally speaking, comes from them um, in the evangelical circle. So just keep all that in mind, you know, when you're thinking through Bethel songs singing about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, they said the words Holy Spirit, but they have a completely, totally different meaning when they say that. Uh, I would argue we're not talking about a subset of Christianity. We're talking about two different worldviews and religions, really, when, it, when you start to examine their theology and what they believe. Um, I would hold to the conviction as well that I think true believers uh, will be saved out of movements such as these. Uh, I don't believe the Holy Spirit will continually allow the blasphemy of his name in many of these instances. Um, I, I just like the, one, the way a uh, old... Princeton Seminarian, before Princeton was a liberal institution, B.B. Uh, Warfield um, said this, we may be mystics or we may be Christians. We cannot be both. And I think that is so true. Um, we cannot have this mystic way of uh, inner spiritual knowledge, mystic guru and Christianity. We have two completely different things. There's Christianity founded on scripture and the revelation that God has given us and the inerrant word of God, and there's everything else. Uh, and I would argue that this Christian, quote-unquote, Christian mysticism um, is something else. So that was just a kind of a review from uh, the week before, talking about Bethel. Uh, just related to those points, I wanted to talk about the CCM industry, the Christian contemporary music industry. This is kind of a, maybe an interesting uh, historical detour for you. Um, I believe we need to at least be aware of just how the last 80 years have affected our understanding of music and worship. Um, I hope that from this class you've realized musical style is not the issue, right? There's no clear biblical command or precedent on the style of music to use. Far and away, uh, the New Testament emphasis is on congregational participation. That, that's bottom line. We, we, we've we've got to start there. Um, and, and I think we've been clear on that. However, um, with the advent of the Christian contemporary music industry, rock and roll music in the 80s, amplification, technology, the radio, internet, K-Love radio, I mean, all this stuff, right? Let's at least, you know, step back and think about how we got to where we are today, um, you know, in 2021. I, I would just say this. First of all, K-Love radio didn't always exist. <laughs> the internet with music videos and, you know, the top 50 Christian worship songs didn't always exist. There's a really interesting book on this if you're a nerd uh, like me and you want to read a little bit more. There's a book called God's Forever Family, The Jesus People Movement in America. It's by an author named Larry Eskridge. He documents a lot of this um, uh, Christian contemporary music actually coming out of the Jesus People Movement, which was its own separate thing. Uh, basically uh, came out in the late 1960s, was a, a Christian uh, countercultural response to the already countercultural hippie movement. So you kind of got Christian hippies, for lack of better words. Uh, it's a lot of things. There's some good, there's some bad, and there's some ugly <laughs> uh, in this movement. Um, you know, there, there's all kinds of, of craziness. Just one of the uh, stories that he tells in this book, um, you know, there, there's all kinds of stories of Christians, quote unquote, uh, doing LSD and all kinds of drugs and, you know, smoking dope before they study their Bible. Here's just one report uh, directly taken from the book. He says, I had a shocking conversation with four psychedelic ministers. This is him quoting a reporter from, I believe, the late 70s. 
they told me they dropped acid, took LSD before they undertook Bible study. They were especially intrigued by their study of the book of Revelation under the influence of LSD. One One man said, man, what a blast. Even the beasts come to life. Under the influence of psychedelics, this generation of hippies is questioning the old truths of the Bible. They seek salvation in a pill. So that's a reporter from the, I believe, the 70s um, talking to some of these hippie uh, ministers, if you want to use that word. He had a big emphasis on the second baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues uh, coming out of this movement. One self-proclaimed Jesus freak, uh, here's a direct quote, said, One night my friend said he could pray me into the baptism, the second baptism as they would, uh, they would believe, if I really wanted it. And I told him, go ahead. We did it on the beach. I knelt down and he put his hands on my head and prayed in tongues. It didn't even take five minutes. The spirit hit me like a ton of bricks. I fell right over. Then I started to pray in tongues. It was terrific. I never felt so great. So, you know, some crazy experiences you can... Uh, do with that what you what you want. <laughs> uh, I would argue that it wasn't all bad. Um, they did have a solid emphasis on uh, conversion, the atoning death of Christ, believed in evangelism. But, but within this movement, uh, you have the birth and rise of uh, Christian contemporary music, and that's really what I wanted to talk about. Um, in one sense, this was kind of planted, or at least the seeds were kind of planted with Peter, Paul, and Mary. They were a band. I think their debut album came out in 61 or 62, um, a lot of biblical language in their songs. Um, they're not evangelical Christians as far as I, I understand, uh, but a lot of biblical religious imagery and language in their music. One thing I would say, um, this is a total aside. <laughs> if you haven't heard of Larry Norman, go on YouTube, look up uh, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music by Larry Norman. It is an awesome song. He's one of the, you know, what many would consider the godfather of Christian contemporary music. And it's actually a really good song. (laughs) So anyways, you have this at this beginning, this Jesus people movement. They're preoccupied with new music, not really singing any old hymns, new music, new words. Um, These are just some direct quotes again from, from Eskridge. I'm just quoting his book. It would be the Jesus people themselves who would prove the most revolutionary musical force within much of the evangelical subculture drawing upon rock, pop, and folk music to create their own body of Jesus music, which they use as an evangelistic tool to enhance their worship and as a form of sanctified musical entertainment. Soon, however, the marketing potential of the new Jesus generation began to move Jesus music away from its informal, countercultural roots toward the trappings and business practices of the mainstream music and entertainment industries. Although it was but a shadow of big-time rock and roll, by the mid-1970s, recording contracts, improved production values, better distribution and packaging, Jesus Music Festivals, and a tiny but increasing amount of radio airplay all contributed to a growing professionalization and corporate control over a formerly casual, homegrown element of Jesus Freak life. Whether known as contemporary Christian music, praise and worship music, or more simply, praise music, Thousands and thousands of church congregations across North America adopted musical styles in their congregational worship that had originated in the Jesus People movement. Okay, now the reason why I quote that, the reason why I say all of this is to just help us think through and realize that the worship music genre, and I, and I mean that in its widest, in the widest sense possible, this worship music genre 
has affected how we think of music and singing in church. I mean, it just has. It's like I argued, the air we breathe. For starters, I mean, this is a money-making industry. In 1984, this is from Eskridge's book, Christian contemporary music, the whole industry, was chalking up sales around $75 million. I mean, I don't even know exactly what that would be uh, the equivalent in today's value. Um, just in, in 2018, Bethel Church's revenue was just over $60 million. And Hillsong, their church, their revenue is over $100 million. Again, I don't know the exact breakdown in terms of how much is from music sales, but I would argue a, a large percentage uh, is from that. And I'll, I'll just say this. When the music ministry of your church is a multi-million dollar machine, you better bet that their production and sound on those albums is going to be excellent. I mean, they're, they're spending millions of dollars on this because this is making them money. So, of course, their music is going to sound incredible. Uh, that's not the issue. Uh, you know, music is not the issue. We, we've made that very clear. But we need to be aware of listening to a recording and going, oh, yeah, that's our problem. We need music like that. Well, that music costs multiple millions and millions of dollars to create. That takes professional musicians. I'd make the argument that perhaps many of these guys might not even be Christians. So why would we want that so badly? Right? I mean, is the church, when we gather to sing, is it a production or is it the local congregation of the people who have, rede- who have been redeemed who are praising God? Is it a production or a congregation? I, I think hopefully over the last couple of weeks you've realized that it's about the congregation, that we're coming together to sing praises to God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Another aspect of this is simply the church growth entertainment model, um, which has kind of blown up in the last 80 years as well. If you get the music, the style, and the culture of the church on board, the music style and culture of the people you're trying to reach, that's how you build the church, Right? You know, the the church and the gospel, that's a product you're selling. And remember, the customer's king. I mean, it just all goes back to, I've used this illustration a couple times, um, I I believe pretty early on. What are we trying to accomplish when we gather? gather? Entertain the unregenerate or encourage the Christian? Is Sunday morning my personal little private time with the Lord or... Is it the gathering of the saints to praise God? Is it a a concert hall or a a movie theater where you're an individual, passive observer and critic? You just need the itches um, of your preferences scratched? Or is the church a banquet hall, a communal, participatory gathering where you come hungry, ready to participate and share, excuse me, in the experience? Do you bring something to contribute to? Now, those are questions that we constantly need to have in our minds when we think through this Christian contemporary music industry and how it's affected our theology of congregational worship. All right, one thing I, I, I have mentioned in the past that I wanted to talk about was this notion of revival, right? You've got all this talk about revival, people walking down the aisles, and you hear this all the time in charismatic Pentecostal circles. Um, in fact, Bethel's last album... All right, one of the last albums. It was called Revival is in the Air. And one of their most popular songs was God of Revival. Uh, you know, what do, we, what do we do with this, right? It, 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 the name is Revival. If, if someone says Revival, is it good? 
Um, this is just something we've done in, in the past in this class, but I just wanted to look at church history and, and just realize there's nothing new under the sun. Um, they have, many who have gone before us have thought about this, this, this issue of revival. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, perhaps you've heard me mention his name before. He's kind of a personal hero for me. Um, he was a pastor in London uh, from the, I want to say the late 30s into the 1960s. And he grappled with many of the same issues. He was responding to uh, and grappling with the ecumenical movement and the evangelistic revival campaigns of, of Billy Graham. I uh, just want to, you know, preface uh, by saying uh, I'm not saying Billy Graham didn't preach the gospel. Um, he, he did. Um, I'm simply looking at what happened and drawing, lesson, drawing lessons from it. Um, I think the Lord did use Billy Graham, but there's also some not so good stuff that, that came out of the ecumenical campaigns of the 50s and 60s. Um, but essentially what you had with these campaigns with, with Graham um, was you had in one sense this notion of reducing the Christian faith to the absolute core principles of the Bible and Christ. Just reducing it down to what he would say, as long as you are believing the Bible and, um, you know, believing in Jesus, that's what matters. And we can have unity as long as we're clear on those. The problem with that is, what does that mean? Um, (laughs) And David Wells, he documents this well. Uh, Again, David Wells, I've mentioned his name before. Great, great books if you want something to read uh, about this of of church and culture and how they uh, intersect now, he mentions this, the goal that diversity in secondary matters would be welcomed quite soon passed over into, and this is key, an attitude that evangelicalism could in fact be reduced simply to its core principles of scripture in Christ. In hindsight, it's now rather clear that the toleration of diversity slowly became an indifference toward much of the fabric of belief that makes up Christian faith. In the 70s and 80s, on every side and almost every way, it was becoming clear that the ways of doctrinal thinking were wearing very thin. The capacity to think doctrinally was being lost as new leaders emerged, as the leadership of the evangelical world shifted from older pastor theologians to the newer entrepreneurial organization builders. And churches began to reflect this change in their attitudes and worship. So, in case that you, you missed maybe what he's saying there. He's arguing that the notion of simply reducing Christianity, what it means to be a Christian, to the, the most basic core principles can actually be unhelpful. And, and, you know, you can even illustrate this with thinking of our church, Crossway, and uh, a church in, cha- in town, Sovereign Grace, right? There are brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, it's fun every time we get together with, with some of them. I realize that we have far more in common than we do that sets us apart. Uh, but there are important things that we are separate churches because of, right? Uh, views on the end times, uh, you know, an understanding of the church and its relationship to Israel, issues like that. It's this kind of this notion of we want to have as, as thick a theology as possible rather than as thin a theology as possible, rather than one that's as thin as possible. Um, you know, yes, it's important to be clear on the gospel and, and realize that we're brothers and sisters in that. Um, but there are important doctrinal issues that form different churches, and, and we need to stand for those. Um, you know, reducing Christianity to Jesus and the Bible ultimately is what led Graham to campaign and, and share the stage with Roman Catholics and saying that their different beliefs on salvation were relatively unimportant. 
And this notion, this justification for revival and sharing the stage with as many people as possible at events, revivals, campaigns, it's always this. Well, God is blessing it because look at all the numbers of people being saved. Look at all the people that are there. Look, Caleb, how can you critique what Bethel is doing with their revivals? Because look, there's 10,000 people there and all this good is coming from it. And it was basically the same thing with the Graham campaigns. You had the rise in popularity of the invitation system or the altar call, right? We're very familiar with that. Preacher finishes the message and then calls everyone in the audience to respond by coming down to the front. Give yourself to Christ. Ask Jesus into your heart. Um, There's another great book uh, on this called Evangelicalism Divided by Ian Murray, where he basically goes into – even documents from Graham and his own staff, uh, where many of these people who were coming down to the front, these these visible, uh, you know, conversions, were actually counselors from the Graham campaign, whether they're paid or volunteer. You know, they they came down. So okay, well, lots of people are already going. So I guess I should too. So you have a lot of these decision figures that even from non critics, uh, you know, from supporters of the events, realize that, you know. Well, there's actually a lot of people who would already identify as Christians going down. These numbers, these, this justification of look at the results, that's a faulty uh, you know, justification if the numbers aren't even there <laughs> by their own admission, uh, you know, even from supporters of the Graham campaign. Look, I, I, all I'm trying to say is that the Lord did save many people, but we need to think carefully about what a revival is. What is revival? Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this, revival is the work of God, and it is not something which belongs to the realms of psychological experience. Look, that, that's great, but what about the Bible? What does the Bible say? Acts 2, verses 37 to 41, I think is an excellent examination of this, thinking through bib- a biblical understanding of revival. Acts 2, beginning in verse 37, says this. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. These are people responding to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then what, what happens after that? Verse 42, and following what? They devoted themselves to one another, this life on life together in the church. So this is what biblical revival is. You see, there's nothing wrong with big numbers, with big events, with lots of people, nothing to do with that. But what's being preached at these events? What's, what's going on? We see here in Acts, Peter's very clear. He preaches the word, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and the, the people there are cut to the heart and they say, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized. And, and why do they do that? Because verse 39 shows that these are people whom the Lord our God has called to himself, as verse 39 says. That's what we see continuing in the book of Acts, the word being preached and listeners responded, responding by repenting 
and being baptized. That's biblical revival. Biblical revival is the new birth. It's the work of conversion. Revival happens when one sinner is saved. That's a biblical understanding of revival. It's the sovereign work of God. He works through the word and the spirit convicts sinners to respond in faith. It's not a passing emotion or just a simple decision made, a walking an aisle, a raising a hand. It doesn't just last an evening. It's not acquiring the fire as I was told growing up. There's nothing to do with that. It's the sovereign work of God in bringing sinners to himself. Lloyd-Jones says this, men can produce evangelistic campaigns, but they cannot and never have produced a revival. Oh, they've tried to do so many times and they're still trying. Alas, Charles Finney, uh, who is an influential figure um, <clears throat> in this movement in a, in a bad way, uh, that's who he's quoting. Alas, Charles Finney has led the whole church astray at this point, teaching that if you only do certain things, you can have a revival whenever you want it. The answer is an eternal no. And that is not my opinion. This is a question of fact. I love this from, from Lloyd-Jones. Have we not all known and watched and seen men who have been trying to produce revivals? They've introduced all of Finney's methods. They've read his books. They've tried to make people confess their sins. They've tried to make them conform. And they've done everything Finney said should be done, expecting revival as a result. They have done it all, and they have brought great pressure to bear, but there has been no revival. A revival, by definition, is the mighty act of God, and it is a sovereign act of God. God and God alone does it. So that's just something we need to, to think about when we hear these words, revival, evangelistic campaigns, perhaps from the charismatic wings. We need to acquire the fire. We're quenching the spirit. We need to think biblically. We need to think biblically. One thing I, I mentioned in our class was the revival. The, it's a book called Revival and Revivalism. Um, I actually printed out an article um, that uh, if you if you want it, please just let me know. I'd be more than happy to send that to you. Um, but it's just a further look historically at this this biblical notion of revival, the Lord's work, and then this historical um, error of revivalism, where man has tried to reproduce and re-engineer, reverse engineer. Uh, biblical revival. So I pray that this is edifying to you, that as we think about what it means for the church to gather and to worship as a body, we can have a more uh, faithful and ultimately biblical understanding of what it means for the church to worship.